0: Hello again, this is Bob Mallon, Audio Information Network of Colorado, bringing you this edition of Military News. It's a Sunday, slightly cloudy, nice and warm today, and I am recording this on the 6th of June, which you'll remember as D-Day the day of the invasion of France that turned the tide in World War II. It's been a long time. There aren't very many veterans of D-Day left, and the remembrances are few, but we should honor those men as long as America exists. Let's get on with today's military news. First article, Military.com We won't give up. Advocates hope Biden will finally bring Marine vet Austin Tice home. Posted 6 June 2021 by Carly Goldenberg It's been more than eight years since Marine Corps veteran and freelance journalist Austin Tice was detained at the checkpoint outside of Damascus as he worked to cover the Syrian war's impact on civilians. He hasn't been seen since, but those who know him believe he is still alive. U.S. officials told McClatchy News Service on April 14th that they are operating with the secret, sincere belief that Tice is alive, and 80 lawmakers signed an April 26th letter urging the Biden administration to use every constructive tool in its power to secure Austin's safe return. Tyson is one of about six U.S. citizens to believe to be held by the Syrian government or forces allied to it. His case is particularly complicated because no group has claimed responsibility for his capture. There have been several unsuccessful attempts to get Austin back, including an August 2020 trip in which then U.S. Ambassador Roger Carstens and the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, Kash Patel, met with the head of Syria's intelligence agency, Ali Mamluk. Syria is ranked 173 out of the 180 countries in the Reporters Without Borders 2021 World Press Conference Index. At least 30 journalists have been arrested and almost 100 have been victims of abduction in the country since 2011. Several lawmakers who signed the April 26th letter to Biden are veterans, including Rep. Von Taylor, Republican of Texas, and Rep. South Moulton, Democrat of Massachusetts. I certainly feel a sense of camaraderie with him, not just as a fellow American, but as a fellow Marine. Moulton, a member of the House Armed Services Committee, who served in the Marine Corps from 2002 to 2008, told Military.com, I had the honor of meeting with Deborah and Mark Tice, Austin's parents, back in 2019, and I promised them that our government would not give up the fight to bring him home. And that still holds true today. We won't give up. It is our duty to do everything we can to bring him home. Austin has spent every birthday, every holiday alone and imprisoned in Syria, thousands of miles away from family, friends and the country he so bravely served. He added, we're encouraged by reports from the Biden administration that Austin may still be alive. It is imperative that the administration use every resource at its disposal to bring him home to his family and friends. They don't want to spend another holiday without him. Taylor, who served on active duty in the Marine Corps for 10 years, including in combat during Operation Iraqi Freedom, said, Congress is prepared to do anything in its power, to bring Austin back home, adding that he was proud that members of all political stripes all over the country came together to urge Biden to act. As a veteran, I think we need to bring everybody home, especially our veterans. Tyler, who left the Marine Corps Reserve as a major, told Military.com. I want to see the Biden administration apply pressure on the Assad regime to get Austin Tice home. Retired Lt. Col. Brian Bruggerman, who served in the Marine Corps for 23 years, worked with Tice for about nine months. He described Tice as challenging in a good way, adding that he always asked thought-provoking questions. Austin's questions were not limited to the tactical situation that we're in. They were about our role in Afghanistan at the time or how to best help the Afghan people, Brueggemann told Military.com. He developed an affection for the people that lived in the country in which we were operating. Austin's affection was just fundamental to who he was. Brueggemann lost a close friend and fellow pilot in a training accident in early 2012. Though Tice was no longer with the unit, he reached out to Brueggemann and he said, Hey, I understand if you don't want to do this, but let me know if you want me to talk to my mom. She's really good at talking about this stuff, and I'll never forget that. Colonel Masahiro Oda, who currently serves in the Japanese Army, met Tice in 2010 at the U.S. Army's Airborne Basic Training at Fort Benning, Georgia. He described Tice as a very gentle and a very kind person. I felt the strong sense of justice, and I felt that he has a very strong heart, Oda said, as he placed his hand over his own heart. I think that he went to the Middle East based on his sense of justice. I believe that he is working hard somewhere in the Middle East. I want to believe that. Brueggemann is also hopeful that he will see Tice again. I'm proud to have gotten to know him. I'm proud to be part of the effort in some small way to keep his story alive, he said. I look forward to seeing Austin again, that's about it. More than anything, Brueggemann said he would like to know that the government is doing everything they can to find, locate and get Austin Tice back. I understand we cannot invade any country we want in order to pick any person up unless we know exactly what that person is. But short of that, we can do everything we can to find where that person is and get them out through any means possible, he said. Just knowing that the people in our government are pursuing that with passion, that's what I want. Here's another cool article from Military.com, titled, The Navy Quietly Rolls Out First Maternity Flight Suits. Posted 5 June 2021 by Hope Hodge Sec. The Navy welcomed its first female aviators in 1974. A mere 47 years later, it's giving pregnant pilots a flight suit that fits them. The service quietly issued the first maternity flight suit to Lieutenant Commander Jacqueline Norton, a mobilization program manager in the Naval Air Force Reserve as part of an early distribution program, officials said this week. Several other pregnant members of the command also received the uniform in a test run to determine its usefulness, Navy spokesman Ami Blade told Military.com. The Navy also began issuing the flight suit more broadly in May via an aircrew systems advisory to the fleet, to the fleet, that is, Blade said. An interim report rapid action change was drafted for the aircrew clothing, maintenance manual, the maintenance of the procedures for how to acquire a maternity flight suit, he said. All pregnant Navy aircrew members are now eligible to wear the garment, which features adjustable side panel and provides a snugger, more professional fit as an aviator's prognosis and pregnancy progress. Prior to the maternity flight suit, pregnant Eric crew have generally collected larger size flight suits and gone up through additional sizes throughout their pregnancy, potentially needing three to five additional flight suits. Norden, who has previously been assigned to an F.A. 18G growler squadron said, in the release. Wearing a larger size flight suit results in longer hems and sleeves, potentially presenting a safety hazard in the air crew cleared to fly during pregnancy. She added that baggy and oversized flight suits simply look unprofessional. Pregnant air crew who are not flying are still conducting squadron business, she said. They're still instructing classes and working in simulators, giving briefings, and representing their organization. It makes a big difference to be able to continue to represent ourselves professionally in a well-fitting uniform throughout a pregnancy. It was actually the safety hazard of the larger flight suits that promoted development of the maternity uniform, Blade said. A single adjustable flight suit can expand across multiple trimesters depending on each pregnancy, saving pregnant air crew the added expense associated with purchasing multiple flight suits, as well as the cost of tailoring larger size flight suits historically purchased to accommodate the changing pregnant form. She said, The expandable side panels allow aircrew to wear their usual length arms and hems, decreasing the risk of safety hazards. But most pregnant Navy aviators are still stuck on the ground, while the Air Force has moved in recent years to create policies allowing pregnant pilots to fly for a greater portion of their pregnancies if they choose. The Navy has yet to follow suit. According to Navy guidance updated in 2017, pregnancy is considered a disqualifier for flying duty, although aircrew members may request a waiver requiring approval from a local board of flight surgeons. Designated naval aviators who are authorized to fly during pregnancy shall perform flight duties in a medical service Group 3 capacity only. The guidance states that. The category refers to aviators limited to operating aircraft with dual controls and accompanied on all flights by a pilot or co-pilot with a less restrictive medical qualification. Since pilot, ejection seat, and high-performance aircraft that can pull more than two G's are entirely off-limit, as are planes that conduct shipboard operations and those with cabin altitudes that exceed 10,000 feet, and after the third trimester begins, flying is banned entirely. In 2019, the Air Force got rid of a medical waiver requirement for pregnant pilots, who wanted to fly later into their pregnancies. It also expanded the standard flight duty window for pregnancy by five weeks, allowing pregnant pilots to fly from weeks 12 through 28 if they choose. Later the same year, Lieutenant Colonel Jamie Jamison, a member of the Air Force Women's Initiative team, said the service was evaluating the science with an eye to further reducing restrictions. The Air Force has also taken steps to design and buy maternity flight suits, launching solicitation and test efforts in 2020. The initiative caught the attention of conservative pundit Tucker Carlson earlier this year. He featured a photo of an Air Force captain wearing one of the flight suits, Prototypes and scoffed, saying such efforts were making a mockery of the U.S. military. Military leaders from across the service were swift to condemn Carson's attack. Women lead our most lethal units with character, Sergeant Major of the Army Michelle Grinston recorded in a tweet. They will dominate any future battlefield were called to fight on. This next article is entitled It May Be the End of the Line for the Navy's Hypervelocity Projectile, posted 4 June 2021 by Hope Hodge Sect. The clock seems to be running out for the Navy's much-hyped electromagnetic railgun after the service closed down development on the hypervelocity round. It was meant to fire in order to make room for new programs. An overview of the White House fiscal 2022 budget request notes that the gun-launched guided projectile, previously called the hypervelocity projectile, has been canceled for a savings of $5.9 million. The Department of the Navy terminated the gun-launched guided projectile research and development effort. The document states, potential reinvestment in the program will be reevaluated after an ongoing strategic capabilities officer demonstration effort in terminal defense analysis is complete. The realignment of resources was one entry in a laundry list of Navy programs and platforms cut, and divert and advertisements that include the accelerated retirement of the classic F/A-18 Hornet and a number of ships. The meter-long projectile was first developed exclusively as a round for the Navy's experimental railgun a $500 million effort that purported to use electricity to fire projectiles at speeds of up to Mach 6 and ranges of up to 110 nautical miles. Despite the more than 15 years the program has spent in development, without being fielded, Navy officials have continued to insist they see a future for the weapon. Then-Chief of Naval Operations Admiral John Richardson told Military.com in 2018 that the service was fully invested in the railgun and pushing forward with development. The hypervelocity projectile, however, seemed to gain its own momentum after officials realized it could be paired not only with the railgun, but also with existing ship deck guns, to provide high-speed, low-cost firepower. The projectile's most recent public outing came in 2018 when the guided missile destroyer Dewey fired 20 of the rounds from an MK-45 deck gun during the massive rim of the Pacific exercises. You can get 15 rounds a minute for an air defense mission as well as a surface-to-surface mission, Brian Clark, then of the Chapter for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, told the US and I News in 2019. That adds significant missile defense capability and capacity when you think that each of these might be replacing an evolved Sea Sparrow missile or a rolling airframe missile. They're a lot less expensive. The story also noted that the Gun Launched Guided Projectile, or GLGP, was being considered as a round for ground based Army and Marine Corps 155mm howitzers. But while the GLGP might be less expensive than some missile systems, which can cost a million to two million dollars per round, it was still far from cheap. A 2020 Congressional Research Service report noted that each of the rounds cost about $85,000 in 2018 dollars. And despite the promise GLGP seemed to hold for a range of multi-service users, the CRS report noted that fielding to ships would involve integrating the round with existing combat systems and additional tests and wargaming after five years in development. These follow-on steps have yet to take place. Transitioning military technology efforts from the research and development phase to the procurement phase can sometimes be a challenge, the report said some military technology efforts failed to make that transition, falling into what observers sometimes refer to as the valley of death. Meanwhile, the news appears equally grim for the railgun military technology news site, The War Zone, reported that the program went unfunded in next year's budget requests, with no mention of plans to resume development efforts Ever again. Here's another article from militarynews.military.com. The Army is putting 30-millimeter autocannons on more Striker vehicles. Posted for June 2021 by Steve Baynon. After years of testing 30-millimeter autocannons on Strikers in Europe, the Army is fielding the medium-caliber weapon system or MCWS, to more of its brigades. On Thursday, the service announced it had awarded a six-year contract to Oshkosh Defense for the production and fielding of the weapons system for up to six striker brigades, at a total cost of $942 million. The first batch will be delivered to 91 vehicles, but no timeline was given for the fielding. The move comes after the 2nd Cavalry Regiment in Germany was outfitted with 30mm cannons in 2018 in a show of strength intended to get Russia's attention. The Oshkosh team brought together best-in-class capabilities for weapon system design, manufacturing, and integration to provide a highly capable solution that meets the Stryker MCWS program requirements today and offers the flexibility to upgrade tomorrow. Pat Williams, Vice President of Defense Programs for Oshkosh Defense, said that in a statement. Our experienced team looks forward to supporting the Stryker Program Office to quickly field this capability to the warfighter. The Army has nine striker brigades, and two, including two National Guard elements. It's unclear which will get the new cannons. Most strikers currently are equipped with an MK 19 40mm grenade launcher and an M2 FOB 7.62 machine gun or an M2.50 caliber machine gun. To make room for the 30mm weapons, the Army will divest from the 105mm tank gun, which it consists obsolete. By the end of the year, according to the service, this will be accomplished. The Army asked for a billion dollars for striker upgrades to its 2022 budget request, down slightly from the $1.1 billion this year. However, the final number could change as Congress still must approve that request. This next article is titled Civilian Trained Pilots May Get Leg Up in Air Force Career Through New Program Posted for june twenty twenty one by Oriana Pollock. Thirty-three aspiring Air Force pilots with previous flight experience they got as civilians have joined a new program that may follow that excuse me, they've joined a new program that may allow them to jump ahead in training. The Service's Civil Path to Wings program has approved pilot candidates from active duty, Air National Guard and Reserve units, graduates from the Reserve Officer Training Corps, and civilian applicants aspiring to earn their Air Force wings, according to Air Education and Training Command at AETC. In an effort to become military aviators, the candidates will be put through a training program tailor-made for their needs, said Anne Lockhart, a spokeswoman for the 19th Air Force, which is part of the AETC. While she said the program is set to begin later this year, Lockhart did not specify a date for the training. The program applies only to fixed-wing and heavy aircraft, such as C-17 Globemaster III mobility aircraft. Those who wish to fly fighter jets still must attend traditional undergraduate pilot training, or UPT. It's not a waiver program, Lockhart said in an email, Candidates who volunteer for the program have their flying skills validated by the 19th Air Force and are then placed in training programs applicable to their skill sets. The hope is to accelerate their training in the aviation pipeline since it builds off their prior flight background, she explained. Applicants are screened on a set of demonstrated piloting skills, along with written and oral exams. Once screened, the best candidates will receive training appropriate to their skill level in an Air Force-approved course, Lockhart said. Those determined by leadership to be exceptionally well-qualified will bypass a portion of UPT and take part in an Air Force Fundamentals course designed to teach more advanced flight skills and techniques. The more well-qualified will take part in the Accelerated Path to Wings program, which is also shorter than traditional training, Lockhart said. Students learn general aviation abilities in the classroom and then head start into the T-1 j Hawk finishing in roughly seven months instead of the traditional 12 months. The first accelerated path to Wings-class graduated service graduated seven airmen on March 12th. All other candidates will attend UPT, Lockhart said. AETC expects to recruit up to 20 officers a year for the program beginning in Fiscal 2022. It is important to note that we are not simply hiring pilots, Lockhart said. We are recruiting those who wish to serve their country as an officer and a pilot. All candidates will first be screened to ensure they meet the standards required to become an Air Force officer. In March, Major General Craig Willis, 19th Air Force Commander, said, the service wants to usher in a more diverse group of pilots on a shorter timeline. The most important thing on that program is still have to be willing to fight and kill and potentially die for your country to serve as an Air Force officer, he told reporters during a roundtable. That's a pretty big lift. While the Air Force is developing more personalized programs directed at streamlining training for incoming pilots through virtual reality and simulation, it is also looking to outsource some training to private industry in an attempt to churn out 1,500 new pilots a year. The Air Force fell short of that goal first set in 2018 in fiscal 2020, producing only 1,263 pilots. In fiscal 2020, the Air Force came up 1,925 pilots short of the roughly 21,000 it needs overall, spokesman Lt. Col. Melinda Sigleton told Military.com in March. The service could not provide specifics about which aviation communities faced the most pressing gaps. Now, jumping over to more local news, here's an an, uh, an article, make that, from the Shriver Sentinel. Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, posted June 1, 2021, by Staff Sergeant Conralin Margiana, of the 56th Communications Squadron, Luke Air Force Base, Arizona. We all come from different backgrounds and each have a story to tell. It is important to talk about what makes us unique and to give us a chance to know and understand a person. A Pacific Islander myself, as is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I wanted to take the time to speak to that portion of diversity that lies within the Air Force. Tinian is a small island in the Pacific Ocean that I call home. It's one of the islands that make up the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, the CNM, and home to my indigenous people. C.H. Hamras, with a population of about 4,000 people, There are no shopping malls, movie theaters, or fast food restaurant chains on Tinian. However, what you will find are locally owned cafes, mom-and-pop stores, and beautiful beaches. Growing up, my family did not have much, and life was hard. Employment was heavily dependent on political party affiliation. For example, if your political party were to win the election— you would most oftentimes be guaranteed to have a job. In contrast, if they were to lose, most oftentimes you would be unemployed for the duration of their term. This weighed heavily on my parents growing up and led to periods of financial insecurity for our family. In search of a better opportunity for us, my parents decided to move to Guam when I was 13 years old. Guam is a 30-minute flight from Tinian, but is a more developed island. Upon graduating from high school, I did not have a plan. I thought about following in my dad's footsteps and becoming a mechanic, but with the cost of tuition to get me through college, especially coming from a household that did not have the financial resources, it felt like too big a struggle. In my family, college was not a serious option. Everyone saw the military as a pathway to success, the best choice available. So there I was, stuck between going to college and joining the military. My brother was the one who encouraged me to list, and I did so in April 2014. Seven years later, here I am grateful and with no regrets for my decision. When I joined the Air Force, I went from a girl I was from a small island of Tinian to a military service woman living in the United States. It was a huge cultural shock. I quickly realized that I had a different outlook on life than the people around me. I only knew the island's lifestyle growing up, which is easygoing and moved to an environment where everything felt so fast-paced and overwhelming. It took some time, but I eventually got the hang of things. However, to this day, I still find it amazing how I am seeing all these places that I only saw on television as a child. And I still find incredible how diverse this country is. Living in the U.S. mainland has changed how I look at life. I was so tunnel-visioned, and now I am more open-minded and able to view things in a different way. Nevertheless, I have had my fair share of negative experiences as well. Having an accent came with challenges for me, as I was mocked and laughed at. On occasion, I would have to repeat what I had said because of my accent. It felt humiliating at times, especially in social settings. It made me want to change the way I speak. However, sure, I pronounce my words properly as salmon over... As salmon... Let me get that straight. Especially in social settings and made me want to change the way I speak, making sure I pronounced my words properly, such as salmon, oven, or saying AC or air conditioning instead of air con, just so I wouldn't be ridiculed. Most of the time, I would prefer not to talk out of fear that I would be teased again. In one instance, I remember being asked a question and I was about to answer. I could see the smirk on the other person's face. I was mocked right in front of my peers. Looking back, I wish I had stood up for myself or had told someone about it to address the situation. Having this experience definitely made me a better airman, wingman, and supervisor because it's times like these that add the authenticity of genuinely caring for my peers and making and being there for them. I'm able to provide insight to others that may have been through or are going through similar things, letting them know they are not alone." If we continue to be kind, open-minded, and have these uncomfortable conversations, rather than instant reactions, we can learn from and teach one another. While creating a safe space for airmen, I think we could really make a difference. I believe this will bring about positive change in the Air Force. We must ensure that our airmen not only feel, but also know, They have a voice and understand that their voices matter. Here's another article from the Shriver Sentinel. 21st MDG Transfers to New Electronic Health Record System. Posted May 17, 2021 by Airman First Class Alexis Christian, Peterson Shriver Garrison Public Affairs, Peterson Air Force Base, Colorado. The 21st Medical Group and all military treatment facilities in the Colorado area switched to the Military Health System Genesis on April 24, 2021. With the transition, the 21st MDG replaced the 20-year-old Legacy System, Tricare Online Patient Portal with the MHS Genesis, a new electronic health record system by integrating all aspects of patient records in one place. Genesis hope to provide a higher quality of care and an overall better patient experience. MGS Genesis is a brand new system. Please be patient with us as we get past the initial learning curve, said U.S. Air Force Colonel Patrick Poley, 21st MDG Commander. MHS Genesis is a Department of Defense wide program, and we are included in a rollout with 25 other MTFs. For example, if you receive your care at the Peterson campus, and then you need to go to Fort Carson to receive some care, they will be able to access the exact same information. We will be using the exact same tool and rolling out this electronic health record at the same time. Poli said that beneficiaries should expect some delays in their care at on-base MTFs for the coming weeks during the transition system. Some of the impact that beneficiaries should expect to see include a 50% reduction in planned care more network referrals for acute and specialty care, significant increases in pharmacy and lab testing wait times, and suspended use of the Tricare Online Patient Portal, as well as Tricare Online Secure Messaging. This is a new technology that we desperately needed, and yes, up front, there will be some angst. Said U.S. Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Daniel Stabatali, 21st MDG Superintendent. But the return on the investment for future patient experiences will be phenomenal. This is a good thing for our patients. The 21st MDG recommends the following to help make this transition period less stressful for patients. We ask that you maximize the use of the Nurse Advice Line, available at 719-524-2273, that is the Nurse Advice Line, 719-524-2273. The Nurse Advice Line provides evidence-based health care advice, recommendations of the most appropriate level of care, and local emergency and urgent care facilities that you might need. The new system will allow beneficiaries to review their health information, message primary and special care providers, request prescription will refills and soon will be allowed to schedule appointments, all on the MHS Genesis patient portal. To set up an MHS Genesis Patient portal account, visit here's a website https colon forward slash forward slash patient portal dot mhsgenesis dot health dot mill to spell it out https colon forward forward p a t i e n t p o r t a l dot MHSGENESIS.Health.mil. Dot dot Establishing a TRICARE West Portal account will allow you to access your referrals also. In order to access your patient records on the MHS Genesis Portal, you will require premium access which does not come at any extra cost. You can upgrade to a premium account at any time by verifying your identity. Those individuals with a common access card will be automatically upgraded to a premium level account. We must change in order to meet the needs of our patients and beneficiaries, sits Della Rabate. We appreciate your patience and look forward to your feedback as well. Ultimately, our goal is to make sure we are taking care of you, your needs, and your families. For more information about MHS Jennifer Health System, make that for more information about MHS Genesis Health System, visit www.health.mil.com forward slash M-H-S-G-E-N-E-S-I-S That's www.health.mil forward slash M-H-S-G-E-N-E-S-I-S This should make things better, but of course, it's going to take time. Now here's an article from the Peterson Space Observer entitled Air and Space Communications Squadron Airmen Achieves Powerlifting World Records, posted june first, twenty twenty one, by Lieutenant Colonel Maley Allison, Combined Air Force Component Command Public Affairs, Vandenberg Space, Air Force Base California, an airman assigned to the Combined Force Space Component Command 614th Air and Space Communications Squadron. ACOMS, broke not one, but two world records during a recent powerlifting competition. Tech Sergeant Chad Penson, 614th ACOMS Cyber Response Lead, participated in the 2021 Kern U.S. Open from April 24 to 25, 2021, and not only set personal records in squats, bench press and deadlift, but also achieved world records in both squats and combined weights of all three lifts. The combined weight of 2,199 pounds was an impressive 11 times his body weight. We are very excited for Tech Sergeant Penson and his well-deserved success, said Lieutenant Colonel John Tay McGraw, 614th ACOMS commander. This is a significant milestone in his personal goals that embodies perseverance, showing us that just because it's difficult doesn't make it impossible. Peterson did not necessarily set out to break all his personal records and achieve two world records. This one event, however, My initial goal going into the competition was to have a realistic plan in place to make it extremely difficult for the other two top contenders there to beat me, even on their best days, said Penson. While I did know the world's records were possible to break, the task at hand was still daunting, and I knew typically things never go according to plan on the actual day of competition. The world records were essentially stepping stones, very, very nice stepping stones. Penson's journey to becoming a world-class powerlifter began as a young trainee in the Air Force. I started powerlifting back in 2011 while in tech school at Keisler Air Force Base, he said. They hosted a small powerlifting meet at the fitness center and I happened to walk in during weigh-ins and just decided to do it. With no previous training in the sport, Penson did not place in that initial competition, but enjoyed the experience and sense of camaraderie there. "'I was pretty terrible, but I had so much fun I decided to stick with it,' he remarked. "'This was a year and a half after I stopped wrestling, and I missed the element of individual competition.' but there was also camaraderie at the meet, even though I didn't know anyone there. Now stationed at Vandenberg Air Force Base, Penson trains at home in his garage gym so we can have access to more specialized strength training equipment. His workouts often last for hours each day. There is a very fine line between balancing work with training at a professional level, Penson said. Eight-hour workdays followed by three to four hours of grueling training and then one to two hours of studying for nutrition certifications or working with any of my clients is the norm. When asked about what the future holds for him, Penson sees continuing to pursue his passion for fitness and nutrition as a natural next step following his Air Force career. It's a small operation for now with me balancing my job and school, but I think I will make coaching and nutrition my full-time career post-military, he said. Helping others achieve their goals and seeing the happiness on their faces, doing something they never thought possible for themselves makes me extremely happy. Another article from the Peterson Space Observer. Wyoming Guardsmen Complete Annual Aerial Wildland Firefighting Training. Posted May 24, 2021, by Tech Sergeant Tiffany Lundberg, 302, Airlift Wing Public Affairs Office, Peterson Air Force Base, Colorado. Every year, one Air Force Reserve Wing and three Air National Guard Wings along with the U.S. Department of Agriculture Forest Service, train and certify for aerial wildline firefighting. On May 10-16, the Air Force Reserve 302nd Airlift Wing and the Wyoming Air National Guard 153rd Airlift Wing completed their annual training, hosted by Jeffco Air Tanker Base, Colorado. The C-130 Hercules aircraft used for this mission are equipped with USDA Forest Service Modular Airborne Firefighting Systems, which can drop up to 3,000 gallons of fire retardant or potable water during training in less than 10 seconds to create a quarter-mile containment line. Our fire training this year is virtual because we are coming out of COVID season where training last year was hampered and we are not able to get folks into the same room to share lessons learned. New tactics or new strategies can't be shared either, said Lieutenant Colonel Richard Pontusa, 302 AWC-130 pilot and aerial firefighting chief. This year, We're going to be spending a lot of time focusing on emerging technologies, strategy and procedures so that we can do this more safely. Sponsored by the USDA Forest Service, the training consists of classroom sessions, flying and ground operations for Air Force air crews, lead plane pilots and support personnel from the USDA Forest Service Bureau of Land Management and other state and federal firefighting agencies are involved. When the pilots and crews trained, the MAFFS units are filled with potable water for practice drops. The wings flew their training drops this year in the Arapaho, Roosevelt, and Pike, San Isabel National Forests and Bureau of Land Management lands. This week, everyone performed exceptionally well, said Major James Espy, 302 AWMAFFS training mission commander. So much learning happens through personal interaction, and it's hard to replace the classroom setting when it comes to training like this. Last year, we had a massive Zoom conference training, but this year we were able to get back to the classroom setting again. They were also able to meet with the lead plane pilots to discuss and demonstrate finer details of the fire traffic procedures, communications, and coordination. The experience in interagency coordination and communication is very, very beneficial to not only the MAFFS program, but also to the wing's primary mission of combat airlift and airdrops at SB. The MAFS mission requires skill and knowledge the pilots and aircrew don't usually execute command to their respective wing's other missions than Pantuso, who runs the MAFFS program at the 32nd Air Wing. The mission requires us to exercise tactics that we don't normally operate in terms of flying low and slow, and coordination and communication with agencies we don't typically work with, from Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management lead planes to the interagency fire coordination dispatch centers, he said. We are training a lot of tactics and procedures that change and evolve throughout the years, for this mission to be able to be done safely. Being able to train together is a major benefit of bringing the wings together for the annual training, said Espy. It not only allows for the sharing of experience to the newer crew, but also streamlines the procedures between the Air Force Reserve, Air National Guard, and USDA Forest Service, During the training, crews from the 302nd Air Wing and the 153rd Air Wing were able to fly and train together on each other's aircrafts. This demonstrated the inoperability, and make that this demonstrated the interoperability between Air Force National Guard and the Air Force Reserve, that even though there are some differences between the Guard and the Reserve, We still operate the C-130s the same way, and there is good value in that mixing, said Espy. This is what is valuable about doing the M-A-F-F-S training exercises with the other wings, because there is the opportunity for a lot of crosstalk. The 302 Air Force Wing, 153rd Air Wing, California Air National Guard, 146th Airlift Wing and Nevada Air National Guard 152nd Airlift Wing provided a surge capacity that can be used for wildfire suppression efforts when other aerial firefighting resources are being used or are unavailable. We get sent out as a surge capacity to a very large fleet that's in employment year-round where the fire season typically starts out early in February and extends all the way into November and December, said Pantusa. We contribute as Air Force Eight additional aircraft. In 2020, we were deployed from the end of July until October, so far about two and a half months. We were in California fighting some extreme fires that were breaking out there. When the wings are dispatched to a fire location they work for the incident commanders who are on the ground. The containment lines the MAFFS units drop directly help firefighters on the ground and together work to slow or stop the spread of the wildfire. MAFFS is a mission we enjoy doing and have a lot of pride because it makes a difference in our local community and across our nation, said ESPY. Well, that's about going to do it for this session. Uh, This is Bob Mallon of the Audio Information Network of Colorado signing off Military News for this edition. Again, be kind to each other. Obey your commanders. COVID is on the run. And we're going to get back to true normal in a very short time. Talk to you again next time. Be well.
1: You're listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times.
0: He likes television more than any politician in this room, and they like television. But he's been wrong on almost every issue, and he was wrong on Wuhan and the lab also, very wrong.
1: Speaking at North Carolina's state Republican convention, former President Trump called on China to pay reparations for COVID-19 and took jabs at Dr. Anthony Fauci. Thousands of the chief medical advisor's emails have been made public, with most mainstream news outlets saying they contained little of any importance. Facebook announced it is suspending Trump for two years, citing severe violations after the January 6th riot, and saying it would no longer grant politicians and public figures special consideration. Department of Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm toured West Virginia with Senator Joe Manchin and discussed the White House infrastructure plan. West Virginia House Delegate Evan Hansen says the state must position itself to benefit from a clean energy economy.
2: The Secretary being here is an indication that President Biden and his team care about states like West Virginia and the impact that climate policies are having on real people and real communities.
1: Over the weekend, Manchin said he'll vote against sweeping voting protections passed by the House in March. The For the People Act would set national standards for election laws, including no-excuse mail-in voting and automatic registration. Total student loan debt has now surpassed more than $1.5 trillion. The individual average is more than 32000 Ashley Harrington at the Center for Responsible Lending says federal grant programs haven't kept up with the cost of higher ed.
2: We've also failed to take into account that this is part of a larger system that is inherently inequitable
1: and a debt finance model in a a society like ours that is so inequitable was never going to work or be sustainable. City governments, including the District of Columbia, are stepping up pressure on the president to tackle the issue. Many have passed resolutions calling on the federal government to cancel student loan debt. Vice President Kamala Harris left for Latin America under intense pressure to reduce the number of migrants coming to the border. In April alone, U.S. Customs and Border Protection encountered almost 180,000 nearly half of whom were from Central America. In Delaware, President Joe Biden spoke about the latest jobs report. Last month, wages rose by 2% as the economy created nearly 600,000 jobs.
0: That means we have now created over 2 million jobs in total since I took office. More jobs than ever been created in the first four months of any presidency in modern history.
1: The unemployment rate is now below 6% for the first time since the pandemic hit. And in Tel Aviv, Israel's security service issued a warning about possible political violence targeting lawmakers seeking to oust Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Nadia Ramlagan. Thanks for listening.
2: Did you know that one out of three U.S. adults have prediabetes and only 10% know that they have it? If you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, you can make small, measurable changes that can reduce your risk and help you live a happier, healthier life. Change is tough, and the YMCA's Diabetes Prevention Program can help. Their program features 25 sessions delivered over the course of one year and are led by a trained lifestyle coach. They also host a group that offers motivation and support. These services are available in your neighborhood. Pre-qualification and registration is required. This program is covered by many insurance companies and scholarship opportunities are available. For more information and to register, contact Tammy Dickerson at 303-557-8662 or email tdickerson at denverymca.org.